0: Well, good morning to you. We're going to continue in the Word today. We'll get back to uh, Nehemiah in just a moment. First, I want to talk about where you are. Where are you? You are in a space that has been labeled 119 East Vance Street in Fuquay, Varina, North Carolina, adjacent to the Art Center. That's, that's where you are. It is what we call the church building. You say, well, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm going down to the church. And that means this space. We, we own this space outright, which is a, a, a great resource. And it's also a reflection of the giving of God's people for a generation or two here, that we, we have a place where we can meet together and, and gather. And everybody knows what you mean when you say, well, I'm going to church, or I, I have to... Uh, rearrange the chairs at church for ESL, our English uh, as a Second Language program, Monday night. We, We know what you mean. You're talking about the physical plant, the facility, the meeting space, but I think all of us would agree by this point that the church is much more than the place we meet. We would say that the church is not just brick and mortar, and to that end, Although we have a number of us here in the sanctuary, the meeting space today, we also have folks meeting with us online, uh, Missy and Lauren and, and Pat and perhaps others. We would say, well, they're part of the church. They're not here at the meeting place, but they're part of the church. I'm not quite sure if we could consider them the great cloud of witnesses at this point or not, but, uh, but for temporarily meeting online, and I do hope it's temporary, that those of you who are meeting with us online and worshiping in this fashion will, as soon as you are able, and as soon as you believe it is safe, that you'll come back and meet with us because the scripture is replete. with talking about the gathering of God's people together, and we're working to that end. Even the precautions that we have taken as leaders in the church and as a congregation over the past months, Hopefully, we'll begin to relax those a little bit more and a little bit more in coming weeks and months, and we'll all be back together, because we agree that the church is not the place that we meet, but the people. When I speak like this, I'm often reminded of a pastor in Africa. I believe he was in Nigeria, and their building was raised by uh, persecutors, uh, leveled to the ground, and an interviewer asked, you know, gee, what? How is your church? I mean, what what are you going to do? How is the church? And the man was nonplussed. He he almost was was puzzled. He he said, uh, the church is fine. The place where we meet has been destroyed. And I I think that's a refreshing perspective for those of us in the the West. So as we come to God's word today, we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah together this year. Uh, And in the first six chapters, we've seen them rebuilding the wall Amid opposition, rebuilding the wall amid opposition. But starting chapter seven, there's a shift. There's a change in the emphasis of the book, which is now on. um, And this is on your sermon outline under introduction, letter A, the bullet point there. The, The emphasis now from chapter seven through the end of the book, chapter 13, is on reforming the covenant community. Uh, Because Nehemiah himself, who was a political figure, he was the the governor who had spiritual interests. He led the physical building of a a project, an engineering project, a mile and a half or two of a wall. And yet we see now his concern, which has been his concern all along, for the people, the people of God, reforming the covenant community. So uh, this sermon series is entitled Restoration Continued. Because a year ago, we were in the companion book, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezra uh, part one, if you will. It was all one book originally. And we've entitled today's message, Why Genealogies? Because we're going to get a little bit of a taste, a little bit of a flavor of the beginning process of reforming the covenant community. And part of that includes a genealogy genealogy is family lineage, right? People are still interested in that today. They swab their mouth with something, put a test tube in the mail, and get back results of where their ancestors came from uh, geographically or, or uh, biologically. It's family lineage. It's your, it's your pedigree. But when we read stuff like this, I think we're tempted to just skip over it. In fact, one of my favorite commentators, I'm Consulting a variety of sources in my reading and preparation for each Sunday. And one of my favorite commentators just wrote a sentence or two just saying we can basically skip over this part. And yet it's placed in God's word for a good purpose. And hopefully we'll see a bit of that today. Now with that said, I'm not going to read the entire chapter because I think I'd stumble over some of the names and numbers. But to give us a flavor for it, right now what I'd like to do is read the first nine verses. You can look in your pew Bible. Uh, this is page 473. Or you can look on the back of your sermon outline as i provided the text of the English Standard Version for you as a convenience. Hear then the word of God. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among those inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. Uh, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misperet, Bigvi, Nahum, Bana, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 652. And the text, the enumeration proceeds from there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you in Jesus' name and we know Jesus that you taught um, as is recorded in Luke 24 that all that is written in Moses and the law and the prophets it's, uh, and that would include the, these historical books and the writings of the chronicler and these memoirs of Nehemiah that all of it ultimately is about you the Messiah of God God's one and only Son in whom we trust for redemption, that is the forgiveness of sins because of your righteous life, your sacrificial death, and your triumphant resurrection from the dead. We thank you that you have ascended on high and you are reigning and ruling. You are seated at the right hand of God, your Father on high. And together, Father and Son, you have sent your Spirit to abide with us always, to lead us into your truth, to bring your word to our remembrance. And so we pray now that the Holy Spirit would do his work and to guide us into all truth. For we pray in the triune name of God, the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so isn't this just boring history and stuff you skip over? you're you're a Christian, you believe in the Lord, you know you need to read your Bible, spend time in God's Word. Uh, You heard somebody talk about a Bible reading plan, you tried that, you're reading through books of the Bible and you get to a place like Ezra chapter 2 or Nehemiah chapter 7 and there are these hard to pronounce names and numbers and it's a whole list and you're, you're sitting there alone having your devotions before the Lord and you're you're trying to pray about your life and your family and your work and your church. And, and you're thinking about all this and you're kind of going, Lord, what hast thou to say to thy servant? I mean, I'm not sure I really get all this. But I would say to you, no, we, we don't just skip over this stuff. Uh, it's, it's important. Uh, first of all, in uh, verse 1, it talks about from doormen to worship leaders, Nehemiah is making sure that as, a, as God's people, that they have a place to worship. His predecessor, uh, Zerubbabel, had begun restoration of the temple that continued under the uh, uh, priest and teacher of the law, Ezra, who we're going to see again next week. We haven't, we haven't ta- heard from him in, in quite some time. We're going to hear about him next week. And then Nehemiah has an interest, too, not just in this wall project, not just the politics of Jerusalem and the surrounding vicinity, but in this reforming of the covenant community, the people of God. Uh, He oversaw a physical project with spiritual implications. And for us today, it's often the opposite. I mean, sometimes there are physical things, like I said, rearranging the chairs to allow a ministry of the church to go on. That's physical work with spiritual implications, but many times uh, for us, our warfare, the weapons that we fight with, are, are spiritual in their nature instead. Uh, in verse 2, a couple of men are mentioned, Hanani, his brother whom we met in chapter 1, who brought Nehemiah the report of the condition of the city and the gates and the walls. And then this other fellow who has a similar name, but is a different individual, I believe, named Hananiah. He is the governor of the castle. And he, in particular, is described here by Nehemiah, um, and I suppose he would include his brother in this, as faithful and God-fearing. That's your first blank on your outline. Faithful. Faithful and God-fearing. Faithful. These key leaders were men who were loyal, men that he could trust. In New Testament parlance, we might think of 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul's admission, admonition to his uh, pupil, his protege, young Timothy. He says, the things you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to whom? To faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Faithful men. Faithfulness is, yeah, as I've already said, loyalty and trust. But it's more than just attendance, being faithful in the biblical sense, I believe, is being full of faith. And that's why he also says that uh, this individual, Hananiah, in verse 2, is God-fearing. That Hananiah has healthy regard, healthy reverence for God, as opposed to slavish shrinking, as we've been talking about fear at least the last two Sundays. All right, And then in verse 3, Nehemiah establishes guards, as well as policies and procedures. And this requires wisdom and discretion, right? Policies and procedures. Uh, Some of the elders and I spent uh, the better part of yesterday at presbytery meeting, one of our area churches in which we gathered with area ministers and elders, and everything was done in accordance with our policy and procedure manual for our denomination. We we term it the book of church order. And that's our policy and procedure manual. And and so here what Nehemiah is involved in is delegation. And he gives these guys that he knows are faithful, loyal, trustworthy. He gives them job descriptions. And uh, as one commentator says, clear and proper guidelines. So he, he appoints them. He tells them what to do and keep some checks and balances with them. Perhaps of more interest to us uh, is in verse 5, when Nehemiah says, God put it into my heart. We still talk that way today, don't we? We kind of spiritualize a little bit. Well, I have a burden, or, or God laid it on my heart, or something like that. But that's not completely foreign to the language that Nehemiah employs here, and we've seen from him before. God put it on my heart. Now, men, if that threatens your masculinity somehow, you may know that the word from the original language here refers to not just the seat of emotions, but the inner person and can just as well be translated mind. God put it into my inner being, in my heart, in my mind to do this. And it tells us a little something about Nehemiah's relationship with the Lord. He's not just a politician. He's not just an engineer or or supervisor. Uh, He's not just overseeing the, the task of rebuilding the wall, but he is a living relationship with God, and he's a man of prayer. We've seen this in long form, and we see this repeatedly in the book in short form, how he spends seasons and weeks fasting and seeking God and praying and dreaming and planning before the Lord. And we also see him Briefly and quickly uh, kind of flare prayers up to the Lord. Foxhole prayers, if you will. But they're much more than that. They've been bathed and steeped in a lifestyle of prayer. And that's what prayer is for Nehemiah. And that's what it can be for us as well. Perhaps seasons of prayer, long periods of prayer, but also brief prayers too. And we see this repeatedly from him. We saw in chapter 1, his initial response to the news that his brother and the others carried to him. We saw that in um, chapter 2, at verse 12, the night mission where he goes out with just a handful of men. He hasn't told everybody what he's up to yet, and he does reconnaissance, and he surveys the damage and looks at what this undertaking is going to involve, and he says that the Lord has put it on his heart to do this. Uh, we see something similar back in the book of Ezra, the companion book, Ezra 7.27. And we early on in our studies in Nehemiah, we talked about Proverbs 21.1, that even the king's heart is like a water course in the, the hand of the Lord, that the Lord turns it whatever way he will. So God works through our inner persons, our inner being. And those who know and seek him who are God-fearing and in a good sense, the healthy respect and reverence and awe for God, he works in their hearts. In Ezra 1.5, the start of this entire book, it talks about not just one great leader like Ezra or Nehemiah, but it says the Lord stirred the people's hearts. And so he works within those who are faithful and God-fearing, people like Hananiah and Hananiah, but also like you and like me today. Um, so, let's see. I'm going to give us now a little uh, shift shift of gears. We're going to read verses 61 through 65. This is not on the back of your outline. So, if you're going to follow, and it's actually quite short paragraph. I'm going to read verses 61 through 65 from Nehemiah 7, again on page 473. Uh, three. No, nope, it's on the next page. As we look at an, an enemy's backstory. So under notes on the passage, we've looked at those who are faithful and God fearing. And now we're going to look at an enemy's backstory, or actually more than one enemy. Verses 61 through 65. The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha uh, Cherub Adon and Emer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent. That's going to be very key. Whether they belong to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah. There it is. We've met him before. Remember? Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. The sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakoz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies. But it was not found there. Something's missing from the genealogy. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. Okay, so what we have in Nehemiah chapter 7 is we have Nehemiah's memoirs, some of his own comments and such. And also then he finds this roster, this genealogy from Ezra chapter 2, and you can compare the two if you'd you'd like. And he's talking about it. And both in Ezra and here again in Nehemiah, which again, remember, was originally all one book. We have the story of some people that were excluded and ill will, uh, animosity. We've already talked about the opposition from outside. And these three key figures, Tobiah may have been the ringleader of them all. And uh, Tobiah may have been among those who came back under Zerubbabel. And then there was intermarriage going on Uh, as well, in two different regards, as is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 6. So a little bit of the enemy's backstory. Can I see some ID? You might put it today. Do you have papers? Might be said in other parts of the world. Even today in our, our culture, what about voter ID? Very controversial, right? What about a vaccine passport? Do you have proof? Who you are, what you've done, where you've been, your identity. And here we have a little bit about an enemy's backstory. Because in this roster, in this listing of people, in this genealogy, as Nehemiah seeks to reform the covenant community, not just to rebuild the walls, there are some people that are excluded and some of them are of Jewish descent, or at least mixed. And others have intermarried with peoples of the lands. They're called Samaritans, And by the time we get to the New Testament and we hear the story of the good Samaritan, we think, oh, isn't that nice? You know, do unto others and do a good deed. And yet if you read the New Testament, you realize that Christ tells that story strategically because as is revealed in John chapter 4, for the Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. There was enmity, there was rivalry, there was strife. Both parties looked down on one another. Why is this? Well, some of these people that had come back could not prove their genealogy. It was very important to the Jewish people, and they didn't have it. And so Tobiah, who may have been an Ammonite uh, from Ammon, one of the enemies of the people of God, and his buddy Sanballat, perhaps a a descendant from Moab, although he was now governor of the Samaritans. They're in in league together, and by marriage and such. In verse 64, they're excluded. They're considered religiously or ceremonially unclean. They are defiled, and so they are not allowed to continue. These descendants of Tobiah are not allowed to continue serving As priests, they're excluded from that. Verse 65, they're not to even partake of things until a qualified priest can settle their case. So what is this really about? Because even as I've been trying to explain this for the last three minutes or so, you might find your mind wandering a little bit back to what I said earlier about genealogies to begin with. Isn't this just the boring history stuff that we just skip over? Uh, And I would say to you, as the book of Nehemiah goes on, we're going to see that this is very key in reforming the covenant community. And so if you can't tell the players without a scorecard at this point, let me suggest to you that there are two key issues here. Mixed marriages and mixing religions. Mixed marriages and mixing religions. And so genealogy was very important to the Jewish people to Uh, have proof of the purity of their line. And so when we have these prohibitions in the Old Testament about some mixed marriages, it's not uh, exclusively about ethnicity. It's a concern, in fact, instead about idolatry. Ultimately, it's not racial but religious. It's so that the people of God would not go after foreign gods. That's what the Samaritans, people repatriated by the Assyrians, the peoples of the land, the Canaanites, and some of the Jewish people all intermixing, all marrying one another. The result of that was syncretism, mixing religions, serving other gods. The Samaritans, for example, only accepted the, the five books of Moses, not the rest of the Old Testament. That's why they were considered, and they, they had an alternate site for their worship. That's why they were considered by the Jews as uh, less than desirable. Okay. So there's a little bit of an enemy's backstory and, and why it's important to these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, Mixed Marriages, Mixed Religions a lack of covenant fidelity, a lack of faithfulness to serve the Lord and him only. That's what they were doing, mixing religious religions. They would say, oh, yes, we serve Yahweh, the Lord, but we're also involved in this and that and the other. And sometimes that's true still in our day-to-day, isn't it? When you see your friends' posts online professing believers that you know, also put their... Horoscope on there, or Eastern thought, or various things, and you think, huh? How does that? How does that jive? How does that mix together? Well, just a few additional notes before we press on under etc. Uh, the Mordecai that's mentioned is it possible that he's Esther's cousin. Uh, commentator, j- just some things of interest, perhaps. Verse seven, Mordecai is mentioned in that roster, that genealogy. Esther's cousin. Um, who basically adopted her. And I call him Uncle Morty because he acted more like an uncle. Maybe, maybe not. Commentators are divided. Uh, Barzillai, that's mentioned in verse 63, I read moments ago. He's a priest, uh, the namesake of a man from Gilead, described as having helped King David in 2 Samuel. Uh, Joshua is mentioned here in the passage. Uh, and 14 generations of priests came from him. Jeshua, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, the Lord saves. Uh, And then finally in verse 73, the chapter closes by saying, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people were in their towns. So we've got these categories of people and In the beginning of repopulating the city with this census, it wasn't a disobedient census like David had done in his life at one point, but this one was one that the Lord laid on Nehemiah's heart to reform the covenant community. And in coming weeks, we'll see that Nehemiah leads these people in covenant renewal. Also in their resolve to follow God's word and so, if you are having a bit of a difficulty so far with genealogy and history and all that, there's a quite an exciting to me story next week about not only Nehemiah but also Ezra and the Word of God and the people's response. So, as we shift gears here today to letter C in your outline, New Testament elaborations and applications. Uh, what I want us to do next is to look at the genealogy of our Lord. Remember. The subtitle for today's message is, Why Genealogies? And they're not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. A couple of the gospel writers um, include genealogies of Jesus. One of them goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew goes back to the patriarch of all patriarchs, Abraham. So there, Matthew 1 is listed for your convenience on the back of your outline. I'm not going to read it all right now because I'm going to ask you to join me in a little exercise in a few minutes, a little sword drill. We're going to look up about four quick cross-references together. But I will remark about this genealogy of our Lord from Matthew 1. A genealogy. Even the word in English, genealogy, you can see it's not far, and the Greek makes it clear. It's genesis, related to our word for Genesis, right? First book of the Bible, which is a book of beginnings. And now we have the book of beginnings, humanly speaking, of our Lord. We know eternally He is divine and lives forever. It's the genealogy of our Lord. Well, we know that Yahweh is the Lord, and uh, from Jesus comes salvation. He is also called the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king, and one person, fulfilling all of these threefold offices that we find in the Old Testament. Also, in our passage, He is called Son of David, Son of Abraham, in Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy. Son of David, son of Abraham, which serves as kind of an outline for this genealogy. Son of David, what does that mean? Well, it would take a long time to explain it all, but it certainly harkens back to the covenant that God made with King David, the greatest king of Israel, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, there's a play on words, sort of, between God and, and David and the Hebrew there. David says, to paraphrase, to, to the Lord, I, I'd like to build you a house. And the response of the Lord, meaning a physical place, like uh, 119 East Vance Street here. And the Lord responds to him by saying, no, I will make you a house, not a physical structure, but a dynasty, a lineage, a legacy, and that he would never lack for a man on the throne, and that one of his descendants would be Messiah, which fact David recognized. We are studying under uh, Ben, our associate uh, assistant pastor's leadership in Sunday school this morning, Psalm 110. And we could also go to Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. How is it that David's son is David's Lord? Well, in Peter's sermon, Peter's preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we see that the throne that is established forever, David recognizes that that won't even be fulfilled in his son Solomon, but in this perfectly righteous one who would one day come. So Jesus is son of David. He is the ultimate Davidic king. He is also son of Abraham, the greatest patriarch of them all. Now, when we think of the covenant made with Abraham, uh, you can look at sort of three iterations of the covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12, 15, and, and 17. In chapter 15, God cuts the covenant with Abraham unilaterally, right? The smoking furnace, the fiery pot. Go there and look at that. In chapter 17 in Genesis, the covenant of circumcision or the sign and seal of God's covenant with Abraham is circumcision. But here's our little sword drill that I would invite you to go on with me through Genesis. We'll just quickly look up a few verses. The first one is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is significant because Jesus is called the son of Abraham. The covenant with Abraham, who was previously known as Abram, Genesis chapter 12, this is page 10 of your pew Bible, just the first three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, get this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the covenant with Abraham... As I see, it was largely twofold to make from him, his descendants, a great nation. And the Jewish people clearly gathered that. Now, we know that they weren't chosen because they were bigger or more numerous than everybody else, but because they were actually the smallest. But a great nation, that's number one. But the second part, maybe they missed. That they be a blessing to all the nations. Flip over a few chapters to chapter 18 in Genesis. We're going to look up just single verses, four of them together, to conclude this section about Abraham, the covenant made with him, and him being a blessing to all the nations. 18.18 says this, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Flip over to chapter 22. 22 at verse 18 again. 22, 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Two more. 26, 4. We're in Genesis. 26, verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. One last one. 28, 14. Chapter 28 in Genesis, verse 14. This is page 27. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What's my point, which I'm taking, by the way, uh, thanks to Walter Kaiser, is that God has always been a missionary God. God has always been concerned about all the peoples, As I said earlier, the prohibition against mixed marriages, it wasn't racial, it was religious. The the purity of the line was was to demonstrate that a people would be faithful in serving the Lord. But, But we know from the New Testament, not all sons of Abraham, not all children of Abraham are truly children of Abraham. And true circumcision ultimately is of the heart. It's not an external right, it's of the heart. That's part of what we see in the Matthew 1 genealogy. Jesus, son of David, Jesus, son of Abraham, the greatest patriarch who would be made a great nation, yes, but who also would be a conduit of blessing to all the nations and that was always God's plan. The Great Commission is found not only in Matthew 28 and Acts 1 and wherever else, but here in Genesis, from the beginning. Other things that we see in Matthew chapter 1, I've, I, I've highlighted some names, I've underlined them for you. We see mention of Tamar, verse 3, who was a Canaanite. And uh, long story, I can't even retell it in short order here, but she was vindicated In Genesis 38. What about Rahab and and Ruth? Rahab, we often call her what? Rahab in church or Sunday school. Rahab the harlot. How about Rahab the believer? She believed the promises of God. And she is spoken about elsewhere uh, in the scriptures. Uh, She, who is first mentioned in Joshua chapter 2, is from Jericho. What's that? That's the peoples of the land of Canaan. She's a Canaanite, a Canaanite dog, right? An idolater, right? And yet she is included in Hebrews 11, the faith hall of fame. And in James chapter 2, where the half-brother of our Lord writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that her faith is evidenced by her works. Rahab. A foreigner, an outsider, not excluded from the covenant, included in the genealogy, in the ancestry, in the lineage, in the descendants of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So too with Ruth. Verse 5, right? We know the story, the kinsman, redeemer, Boaz. Where, where was she from? Ruth the Moabites. Moab. So the the Enemies of God. She's engrafted into the covenant. So in verses 2 through 6, we've got Abraham's line. In verses 7 through 11, we've got David's line, son of David, son of Abraham. Verse 7, it mentions Uriah the Hittite. Um, It doesn't even mention Bathsheba by name. Bathsheba is the Jewish woman. But Uriah, a Hittite. Again, somebody thought to be initially outside the covenant community, except that the Lord is a a God of all the nations, of all the earth. He's not a a regional or provincial God, and he has his people everywhere. He has many people in this city, and he has many people in that city and everywhere. We've got the map room back there. (laughs) The Lord is the God, the great king of all the earth, and he has his people everywhere, and God-fearing people, Not only Jew, but Gentile too. In the New Testament, a God-fearer that becomes a technical term for Gentiles who would go to synagogue to hear the word of God, to hear the law and the prophets taught, which ultimately point to Messiah. And in verses 12 and 13, Zerubbabel, our good old friend from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, who led back the first wave of returnees to the land, That's why this is important. As one commentator notes, uh, there's more in Matthew later on, as, as scholar Craig Keener observes. He says, Magi from the east honor Jesus. A Roman centurion displays exceptional faith that caused Jesus to marvel. Remember that? As does a Canaanite woman the gospel climaxes with a call to disciple all the nations in that great commission commission passage of chapter 28, as we saw at Easter. Uh, The only other thing I will mention about genealogy as we move towards a close now is in verse 16, it mentions Joseph, right? The earthly father of Jesus. But we know that because of the virgin birth of Christ, We know that when uh, Joseph is included here, this is a legal inclusion, not a biological one. And isn't it amazing to know that our Lord Jesus himself was adopted? Because that's what Joseph did. He adopted Jesus. And the blessings of adoption are maybe the most beautiful doctrine of our faith. I wish we had time to unfold it. So we started out at the outset today saying that you, are, you and I are both at 119 East Van Street in Fuquay at the church building, except for our friends online. Uh, but that the church isn't the brick and mortar, it's the people. It's always actually been that way. I'll close the message today with re- reading one last scripture, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, Verses 22 through 24. Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The church is more than a building, a meeting place. It's the people. As Peter puts it, it's living stones being built up into a house for God. The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. There's another genealogy. And I hope you're included in that roster in the book of life. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Go to Hebrews chapter 8 and see how he writes his laws in our minds and on our hearts. And how he says they shall be my people and I will be their God. This has come true through the person of Jesus, the Christ, and he remembers our sins no more. His sprinkled blood, chapters 9 and 10 in Hebrews, his sprinkled blood has paid it all. The ransom is complete, and he's continuing to draw all people to himself. Let's pray. Lord, we would give you the praise and the honor and the glory. We thank you for the shed blood of Of Jesus Christ, that of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pure and blameless, without blemish or spot. Not only does He declare your word to us, but He obeys it perfectly. We come to you in His name. And we know that there is a book, a book of remembrance. And that if our name is enrolled and registered there, it will never be erased. For you give eternal life to your sheep and they will not perish. You know them. Thank you that we are in Christ, that we have union with him because you have granted us the gift of faith. And if there's anyone hearing this message today that you're now doing that work in their heart, I pray that they would turn away from going their own way and to fall on Christ and to pre- plead the precious name of Jesus. For we do pray in his name, amen.